welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 111, Dorothy Arzner's Do. Yeah, that's right. We're going to do a, another one of the under-thought-about, under-appreciated uh, directors from Hollywood's past, um, partially because she was female. And we're going to talk about her. She has a really interesting career. And let's jump into that right away and kind of some of her biography. Uh, she was born in 1897 in San Francisco, and her parents owned, uh, eventually moved to L.A. where they owned a restaurant. And there, uh, very young Dorothy would uh, rub elbows with some of Hollywood's elites at the time, including Mary Pickford, Max Sennett, Douglas Fairbanks, and other famous people. Um, she would go on to study medicine at USC and joined a local ambulance unit during World War I. But after the war, opportunities came up uh, that allowed her into the uh, film industry where she met with William DeMille. Ironically, one of the things that kind of gave her a foothold into the film industry was the Spanish flu, which shut down Hollywood and uh, left a lot of job openings. So, you know, just while we're still, you know, at the tail end, hopefully, of the whole pandemic thing, like the pandemic is one of the things that actually... Uh, gave Dorothy Arsner a foothold into an industry and made her a trailblazer. Yeah, there's a lot of industry shakeups there. I think we talked about this on a bonus podcast before, but the flu essentially gave a pause in the industry and people who acted aggressively during that pause quickly became the super studios of the future, including famous players Lasky, which mm-hmm. during this time formed into Paramount. And uh, acting aggressively seems to be one of uh, Dorothy Arsner's uh, defining traits. Yes, it is definitely one of the reasons for her success. Um, but anyway, when she worked at Famous Players Lasky, she had the chance to watch Cecil uh, DeMille on set. And to quote her, uh, if one was going to be in this movie business, one should be a director because he was the one who told everyone else what to do. Um, and then she started in the script department. Uh, she tried to start in the um, set decoration department because that's a little more stereotypically female at the time uh but william demille actually asked her to redesign his room on the spot and realized that she was bullshitting him but it was a pretty good bullshit so uh (laughs) he put her in the script department instead um she also worked as an editor and she cut 52 films at paramount at a paramount subsidiary company called real art studio um until uh being recalled to paramount proper to cut blood and sand from 1922, which is a fam- famous Rudolph Valentino film. Rudolph Valentino being one of the first, like, true heartthrobs of the silver screen. Like, women would, especially younger teenage girls, would go ballistic over Rudolph Valentino. Um, he died tragically young. There's a whole story there. But it was a very significant film in both her and Hollywood history. Um, And she actually got to direct and shoot some of the bullfighting scenes in that movie, uh, essentially as a second unit director. This work caught the attention of another director called or named uh, James Cruz, who employed her as a writer and editor. And during which time she gained enough leverage to threaten to leave Paramount if she didn't get to direct a movie. Um, And then she got to direct her movie. Her first was called Fashions for Women from 19 in 1927. And it was successful. Um, essentially filling that role of the woman's picture that we've talked of before. Um, and the 
That success got her three more silent films with Paramount, uh, followed by her ability to direct Paramount's first uh, sound picture, The Wild Party, from 1929, uh, during which she uh, worked with uh, Clara Bow, who was the famous It Girl of the time, and, very importantly, uh, on that set, Clara Bow was having a hard time acting with the microphone being in a very set place, which anybody who's seen Singing in the Rain can tell you about the scene. Um, So Dorothy Arzener had the sound guy put the microphone on a fishing rod, uh, therefore essentially creating the first ever boom mic, which is a very important part of cinema. um, And one of the first instances of mobile lighter cinema that ever, Mm -hmm. uh, that ever existed and that you'll see, become a big thing in the 60s. And honestly, um, he, one of the hardest jobs on set, so I'm sure there's a lot it's of... It's a difficult one. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, they don't they didn't use f- fishing poles forever. Once they realized how good of a technique they was, they, it was, somebody actually developed a set uh, boom fixed pole. rod yeah. for a boom pole to work. And now we have fancy, like, carbon yeah, fiber like ones. Me- mechanical and, rigs and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you have all sorts of stuff now. But that was the first time that it got put on a mobile... Uh, section and that was important. She also directed one Frederick Mark March in his first film on the Wild Party, which is also important. Uh, he would actually go on to, I believe, be uh, Mary Pickford's second husband as well, as well as a very successful um, uh, actor in his own right during the silent and early sound era. Um, then she went on to direct many uh, very early films or very prominent early star turns for various uh, famous leading ladies of the 30s, um, helping to either kickstart or push the careers forward of Catherine Hepburn, who she directed in her first movie, Christopher Strong, in 1933, Rosalind Russell in Craig's Craig's Wife from 1936, and Lucille Ball from a movie we're going to talk about today in Dance Girl Dance. Um, Ironically enough, Lucille Ball had been known as the Queen of the Bees before that and kind of cycled into her stardom slowly after that. And eventually her uh, businesswoman savvy. Um, she, uh, Dorothy Arzner was the only female director to, to successfully transition to sound era Hollywood uh, out of silent era. And she was the first and only uh, woman for a very long time in the DGA. Uh, I believe she was succeeded by Ida Lupino, which is important. Um, she eventually left Hollywood after 1943's First Comes Courage, which was a World War II film. Uh, and then she saw, she shot many WAC, Women's Army Corps, uh, training videos during World War II. Um, she was uh, friends with somebody at Pepsi who got her uh, the rights to shoot like over 70 Pepsi commercials over the next few decades. That's basically, she got super rich (laughs) doing this. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, And she shot a lot of them actually with Joan Crawford. Um, And eventually she would teach at UCLA during the 60s. And one of her students uh, was a very young Francis Ford Coppola, who quite liked her films and cites her as a very large influence on his style. Uh, But... That's kind of the biographical story, but let's take a look at some of the movies we're going to talk about for today. Uh, Jonathan, which would those be? 
Yeah, so we're starting off with Get Your Man from 1927, which is a silent film starring Clara Bow, uh, which we just mentioned, and Charles Buddy Rogers. And then we'll be moving on to Merrily We Go to Hell from 1932, uh, which is sound, but technically pre-code. And we're going to probably have to get into that. I think yeah, the code it's, it's takes effect in 34, so just before the code. Yeah. Um, is based on the novel uh, I, Jerry, Take the Joan by Cleo Lucas, and it stars Sylvia Sidney and Frederick March. And finally, we'll be looking at Dance Girl Dance from 1940, uh, as we already mentioned, stars Maureen O'Hara and Lucille Ball uh, in a very uncharacteristic, uh, in the way that we think of her now, role. And I'm very excited to talk about that. Lucille Ball's character is just like diametrically Bubbles? opposite of what we expect from from uh, a Lucille Ball character these days. Yes, it's very, very different uh, from her comedy days. Um, oh, and I also just remembered it wasn't Frederick March who married Mary Pickford. It was Charles Rogers who married Mary Pickford. I knew he was ah, in one of the go. movies today. <laughs> I got it mixed up. I apologize. But anyway, let's jump into it, uh, starting with Get Your Man from 1927. Uh, Jason, take it away. Get Your Man from 1927. A handsome European nobleman, Robert, played by Charles Rogers, has been promised since birth to another noble family's daughter. Alas, he's fallen for an adventurous and liberal American girl, Nancy, played by Clara Bow. The arranged marriage threatens to keep the two young loves apart until Nancy cooks up a zany and clever plan to dissolve the engagement. All right, Jonathan, so this is the only silent film we're going to talk about today. Uh, what I had I had actually seen it before. What did you think of it? Okay, I do have a question about this. Um, in what way did you watch this? Did you watch uh, the YouTube version that does not have any underlying score? Uh, no, I watched the, uh, I believe I watched this on Amazon with the score. Oh, okay. Is it on Amazon? Uh, yes. Some of these I was having trouble finding places to actually rent them. So there's a version on YouTube. Um, technically, I think it's public domain looking at uh, Wikipedia right now uh, because Paramount oh, it definitely should be. It's very didn't old. renew the copyright at some point. Um, so you can find this on online. And so basically what I did is I watched it on YouTube with uh, with no score. And then I found a Spotify playlist that's literally like hundreds of hours of just silent film music. Uh, and so I just shuffled that and sometimes it worked really well with the movie and sometimes not so much, but it was fun. So, um, yeah, I thought it was very interesting. It, it definitely feels, um, like a very kind of classical type of story. Like it has this, this, uh, we talk about transcontinental accents sometimes, but it almost has like a transcontinental thematic base in that there's yeah. this weird, like royalty thing and yet it's still like halfway in the modern era uh and there's this uh prearranged marriage that we start off with which is just it's really funny way to begin so it starts with a title that says uh this is the betrothal day of such of uh, whatever the guy's name is i'm already forgetting um uh of robert albin to the uh Simone de Valen or whatever. And it's like, it's all French, very, um, aristocratic. And then yeah. we open on this, uh, like five-year-old kid kissing the hand of like a two-year-old baby. 
And so we get the idea that this is a prearranged marriage. And then as the story goes on, we get into like the, the whole, um, kind of mixed, mixed love triangles and, and stuff like that. But just opening it on that kind of just almost right off the bat already subverting our expectations of like, you know, prearranged marriage and like showing how, like going to a really archaic place in, uh, this idea of relationships and stuff in order to kind of uh, play around with even kind of some general ideas about marriage. Yeah, it's very it's very much got the aesthetic of like that pre uh, World War Two uh, broad European, very much like the Ernst Lubitsch uh, kind of cosmopolitan feel or like almost think like the Grand Budapest Hotel where everybody speaks English somehow. Um, yeah. And you can understand all of the. Uh, you can understand all the European people, even in their fanciness and, and their I mean, oddity in because film, they have just nobility. The, the inner titles, but yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, it, but it does have that, that metropolitan or cosmopolitan, I mean, feel to it, which is interesting and fun. Uh, and the story isn't, I wouldn't call it ambitious in any sense of the term. No. This is very much like a studio kind of like off the line movie, uh, but it is, it is well done and it is it fun. It does have and its there moments are, though. Yeah. And I love when the old dude's playing music uh, to try to. Yeah. Seduce the seduce the, the seduce young the American female lead. Um, and I also I think the most notable thing about this film when it comes to Dorothy Arzner is how the romance in this movie feels compared to other movies that I've seen from this era. This romance yeah. actually feels fairly two sided and it doesn't feel creepy. Those are kind of like the two big bullet points. Like there's a lot of times when you go to these older movies and you watch the romance and it just feels like weird or creepy or like forced in some way uh, and very male gazy. And in this way, in this one, it just doesn't feel that's that same type of way. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest elements that goes into that and the biggest takeaway that I had from this movie is, um, Clara Bow's character, who's the uh, the American socialite or whatever you want to call her, but um, she basically holds all the power in every scene that she's in. Sometimes the the men in the scene don't even realize it, but she is like decidedly calling the shots throughout. Yeah, pretty much all of the film, uh, yeah. which is definitely something that you don't see in films this old uh, and. Sometimes not even today. Uh, But yeah, she's definitely like um, like one of the very first things after, you know, the really coincidental plot thing where after he goes back home after meeting her uh, in Paris or whatever. And then uh, she like her motorcycle crashed. And so she's like staying with him now and his fiance is there and he's like, no, I love you. I have to be with you now that you're here. And she's like uh, she's loving it. But you only see that on her face when he's not looking at her. And then when he is looking at her, she's like, oh, I don't care. Blah, blah, blah. And so she's like, she's totally manipulating him. And then, I mean, that goes into the end, which I definitely, I mean, work up to it. But like she, she causes all the problems and then solves all the problems all at the same time, basically. Yeah, no, she has a ton of agency in this movie. And she comes off as an incredibly likable character the entire time, which is excellent. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think there is this bad tendency of uh, male directors to occasionally try to uh, make 
good female characters and they don't do it very well and just make them they like kind overcompensate of like or something. Yeah, it's like the overly like strong female protagonist. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? The or, one who says, oh, why would you comment about my body first or something like that? Like making a really yeah. obvious comment about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. They lean like a little too hard into it being obvious rather than having them be natural characters. Yeah, um, just normal people. Yeah, uh, but in this one, in this one, it feels very nice. This is also our first uh, Clara Bow movie ever. Um, yeah, that's true. Which is which is interesting. She is pretty significant. Uh, we talked about Mary Pickford before on her own full episode, uh, but Clara Bow was who dethroned her. Um, and with the rise of the flapper, uh, Mary Pickford's aesthetic was that of a, like a cute young girl, essentially, which there's a lot to impact there psychologically with America's obsession with youth. Um, we kind of got into she, that with the Mary Pickford. We did. Uh, but uh, she was dethroned with the rise of the 20s and the flapper aesthetic, which was signified most by Clara Bow and in her movie, The It, the it Girl, which or it. I think. She was, it was just called it, wasn't it? Yeah, but that has like, a different connotation now. Yes, it does. Uh, no clowns, I think. Nope. No, at least no killer clowns, I think. I haven't seen it. Um, but at the very least, uh, she kind of dethroned with the change in, in style. She kind of became representative of the 20s as a uh, decade, essentially, of style, dethroning Mary Pickford and then by the time uh, the 30s roll around, you know, you had a whole new set of uh, female leads all vying to be the queen of Hollywood. And you could probably go year by year and figure out who it was. Um, but all that is to say that this is an inter- another interesting point in film history because this is when we established that um, the ru- ru- ruling royalty of Hollywood is meant to be forever changeable. Um and I don't even know if it really exists anymore, but certainly at the time it did. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of arguable, but I think that the the film industry has just grown so much that there are probably too many and too broad of a range of audience and stuff to really have like a, this is the one person um, at, at, yeah, at this point anyway. it's all about niche culture now. Yeah. Yeah, no, there um, will be. I don't think there will be anything that's broad and dominant again, at least not for a very long time. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there's some like interesting things in this movie. Like the uh, there's a whole scene in this wax museum that I was not expecting. Uh, oh, yes, yes, that one. Which is like it's almost creepy and it's kind of like it's playing on genre. I love it when these movies that are so old play on genres that you know, we still have and they still translate because I mean, I don't even know what the state of genre was in 1927. I mean, it's all coming from, you have your like literary genres and theatrical genres, I guess. And then, but I mean, they're playing on like this creepy thing of, uh, mistaking the guy for the wax figure and it's all played kind of, kind of cutesy, but just, uh, I guess just the nature of wax museums makes it kind of creepy. Um, I kept thinking about the uh, Vincent Price uh, movie, House of Wax. Okay. I haven't seen that one yet, but I have seen the... Uh, oh, it's good. It's really the, good. The Twilight Zone episode, The New Exhibit, um, which is just all I could think of. Uh, but that's kind of like an exception in this movie. The rest of the movie is very kind of uh, 
extravagant. They're in this luscious house. The re- I mean, after that, the movie's almost like a bottle movie. Um, yeah, once they get to the mansion, they kind of yeah. stay there. Almost like a, almost like a rules of the game kind of a thing, where they're just all kind of running around, and each yeah. character is like having different interactions with each other in various parts of the house, and you know, playing on each other. So, uh, uh, Clara Bow's character starts like, um, you know, she's not only trying to kind of get the main guy to like her more and more, uh, and pull pull him away from his fiance. Then she's also like using. I wasn't actually sure what the full plan was with uh, seducing the old man. I think oh, it was just to get him to let go of the uh, arrangement, the arranged marriage thing. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, all to break down the arranged marriage. Yeah. So she seduces the other girl's dad, and he's like, he's all for it. Um, and then the other girl has her own fiance. Uh, so some of these things like are are kind of tropey these days uh but they all kind of like they're just weaving this kind of like intricate plot web that sets up for a big nice uh you know bow at the end which actually is a little it's kind of edgier than you would expect for this kind of movie but it's also what goes into making it pre-code because i think there are definite like clear signs of the the pre-codeness of this movie definitely merrily we go to hell but uh this movie has some of those two, even though it's it's probably the most straight laced of the three that we're looking at today. Yeah, that's fair. That's definitely fair. This one's very traditional in a lot of ways. And you can mm-hmm. definitely tell that how early this is in Arzner, Arzner's career as well, because this is very much basically a and this is not to disrespect the movie or the people who made it is basically a run of the mill uh studio film i don't think it's the people of, who made this movie are going to be offended alex i don't the one they're <laughs> dead uh two yeah i don't think they would be either i think this is very much just something that came off the line but you can't see but it's it's nice to look at for those those signifiers of things that make dorothy arzner films dorothy arzner the people are more empathetic the power dynamics are a little different um, the characters are more interesting uh or at least a little more fleshed out than we typically see female characters being, mm-hmm. uh, especially this early on in film history, uh, which is all very refreshing and interesting to look at. Um, I also like that there's this angle in here of the clever American uh, outwitting the yes. foolish European nobility. The very uh, like uh, traditionalist, like staunch Europeans too. It was definitely like uh, almost a, a loose American gets the uh tight europeans to loosen up kind of a kind of a thing like it was pretty blatant along those lines yeah it very much was which was fun uh but it was also very um it felt very 1920s 1930s pre-world war ii uh americans aren't like like stronger they're more clever. They're smarter. They yeah. stay out of things that they're not meant to be in. But when they get there, they outwit. Yeah. Um, and they're less which staunchy, is, which goes into the uh, yeah uh, the quote unquote scandal bit at the end. Uh, yeah. But before imagine, we get into that, imagine a time when the world thought Americans were more liberal than the rest oh of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so one thing I noticed directorially um, about this movie that I thought was interesting is the way that Arsner, um uses her framing 
and she does a lot of times in this, and this goes into the whole aspect of it being kind of a bottle movie inside of this house, but especially in that night scene when uh, the the main dude is going to uh, you know tell her that he loves her again and he's going to get out of his prearranged marriage, but then also the dad that she's been hitting on is going to uh, you know woo her with his um, his little flute thing or whatever. And I believe it's a piccolo. His piccolo. I'm sorry. Uh, and so they're they're all kind of like sneaking around the house doing this kind of Scooby Doo thing. And she does a lot of times showing like you have a frame of you know someone in a room, and then through a doorway you can see even more information. Um, and so she does this a lot of times where she creates like a frame within a frame with doorways, uh, which I think is really nice because a lot of times in these really old silent films the compositions can tend to look kind of flat uh, just based on kind of the way that they had to shoot it with the the lighting. They have to shoot kind of also very um, fast, very much kind of like yeah. a factory off the line. Yeah. And it's almost more theatrical where they just have like drop down sets kind of thing. And uh, but so using that depth and using doorways and things like that, I thought was uh, really good and, and kind of showed her um, her just ability on a technical level because uh, yeah. you know it goes back into our our conversation about um uh technical directors versus actors directors and i think that arsner does a really good job of of balancing that line because you know she's got to do a really good job with the actors because her character dynamics are always so complex um mm-hmm. in all three of these movies that we're going to see but she doesn't neglect the uh the really technical aspects of creating a good frame and conveying information through the way that you're framing things, even when, you know, the quality of the film is, you know, 1927 is not, uh, not the, the most high fidelity, like best HDR. Yeah. Right. Um, which going into like the technical quality of film was, is a different discussion, but the way that it was presented and the way that it's been preserved, you know, means that you don't get quite as much information, but if there's a way that you can, do stuff like that and still get it across. It's, it's really impressive. I remember this being a more difficult movie to pull stills from just based on the quality of the uh, preservation, but there were quite a few interesting shots in there and they, those do really show um, her history as an editor and as an apprentice. Yeah. Um, You can't come away from looking at hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of footage and being told to pick the best shots without coming away with a good idea of what makes a good shot. At least a lot of opinions about other people's shooting. Yeah, right? The best of them know how to shoot well. The worst of them just criticize. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into uh, the finale of this movie because I think that that is something that's really interesting and it like technically probably could have happened after the code went into effect, but it's kind of towing the line because... Uh, so we're going to get into spoilers here. You can find this movie on YouTube or, or whatever. Plus it's, uh, practically a hundred years old at this point. So, um, so at the very end, uh, Clara Bow's idea is to create this, uh, she creates an impression that, uh, she has taken her relationship with the other guy, um, to a marital extreme. I'm going to say this very diplomatically. We all know what you're talking about, Jonathan. <laughs> and 
So she, she like stomps around in the room, blah, blah, blah. She gets everyone to come there and then she like rushes into his arms and he's all very confused. Uh, this is definitely the most, I mean, uh, if you want to call it manipulation, you probably definitely falls in that category, but she like runs into his yeah. arms. So it I looks call like it nefarious, but it is manipulation. Yeah, it's manipulation. So, uh, she's created this big impression, which then gets, well, almost doesn't get her out of, uh, of being pursued by the other girl's dad, um, which is also kind of scandalous, I feel like. Uh, but then it does, it kind of like solves all the problems. It creates a, a bad image kind of a thing. But then like the, first of all, the, the main guy's dad like kind of catches on to it at some point. The other girl's dad is just kind of clueless. Um, but the main girl's dad is like, oh, well, we have to save our honor. So the honor thing kind of saves them, but also is kind of an excuse uh, yeah. So it's, it's just really interesting that they they bring it all together, but the way that they do that is with a really kind of a a scandalous implication, even though the audience knows that. Well, what could what could stuffy Europeans fear more than a scandal? I know, right? Uh, and so she's she's playing with these ideas of kind of the traditionalism and the um, uh, the rigidity of the you know at least on the face of things the kind of moralistic facade. Um, and she she uses that and plays with it and kind of breaks it down without like really breaking it down because it's just an implication in the way that is portrayed here. Uh, yeah, she's very hinted at. But she's she's uh, she's able to play with those boundaries really well, and it comes off like really fun and sweet and all that stuff. But it is something that I feel like a couple of years later would be like much harder to get through, even though it probably oh, yeah, could. Sure. It almost falls into the. Uh, the walls of Jericho kind of a, a situation like we talked about with it happened one yeah. night. Um, oh, it definitely does. But it's still like, it's kind of towing that line. She's definitely, and she does that with all three of these movies. Uh, Very even, much a not in a week situation, not in a wink situation. Yeah. Yeah. Even dance girl dance was way more, um, implicative than I was expecting, which cause it came out after the code was in effect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely ways to get around parts of the code. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the heaviest which ways was found, to imply things. Yeah, which people found no end of ways to imply things. Which um, almost made a lot of them. Yeah, which made a lot of it almost more fun and interesting and funny. And I think this is one of those instances of where maybe they didn't have to, but maybe they'll add this in just to make it funnier. Like yeah. the implication in and of itself is actually pretty funny. Yeah, no, definitely. It's that that whole thing because i mean part of the whole gag is that he's so clueless as to what's going on he's just kind of like getting pulled along for the ride which is kind of his entire character which is hilarious <laughs> yeah, he, has, he has no idea what's going on which is why i'm not sure i would even call the romance uh two-sided i think it is kind of That's one-sided fair. but on her side rather than his side yeah whereas well, he's, like he's I definitely keep thinking interested of, he just has no idea what's going on yeah and when you're talking about like one-sided like borderline creepy relationships i'm i'm thinking of um and not to like disparage the movie because we've talked about it before but uh like you've got mail where once tom hanks character kind of gets yeah there is a part of that movie that gets really creepy yeah he he's definitely pulling the strings and like that that's why that story is so dependent on who plays the the male character because without a Tom Hanks or a Jimmy Stewart, it could go wrong really quickly. Um, yeah. It, there's a really fine line to be towed there 
Whereas uh, here, it's a similar kind of thing, but it doesn't feel as creepy because yeah. it's on the other foot. The shoe's on the and, other foot here. And, and Frederick March is a pretty good, uh, pretty good actor. In fact, he had he had a, quite a number of hits. Actually, I believe he was in uh, the first Oscar winner. I believe he was in Wings. Or maybe oh, that was okay. Rogers again. Uh, oh yeah, Buddy Rogers and Clara Bow were both in Wings. Uh, it's freaking Buddy Rogers every time. Is that Frederick Marsh? Nope, Buddy Rogers. Yeah, so both of our stars for this movie are in Wings, which I guess we'll have to get to Wings at some point. It's the very first Oscar winner. Yeah, um, it's actually one of the better Oscar winners, too, which is sad. <laughs> Oscar winner. I went through that whole list at one point. There's, it's a roller coaster of a history. Oh, I'm sure. All right, cool. Anything else specifically about Get Your Man, Alex? Uh, not that I can think of. All right. It's well, basically setting up her career. Yeah, it is. Um, and we'll see how that progresses in a much darker take in Merrily We Go to Hell. Take it away, Jason. Merrily We Go to Hell from 1932. Jerry Corbett, an aspiring playwright and alcoholic, meets and falls for Hyrus Joan Prentice. She falls in love as well, and soon the two are engaged against the advice of her father. Jerry manages to ruin the engagement party with his intoxication, and after the marriage, he drunkenly ventures out to meet his ex-girlfriend, to which Joan responds by taking up drinking and having affairs herself. As the two descend farther and farther into the grips of addiction and a failed marriage, Jerry begins to realize that he actually does need and love Joan, but quite possibly too late. Jonathan, we have sound. Yes, we have sound in the movie. But I would like to start off not by talking about sound, but the visuals, which are still rock solid in this movie. And I think the introduction mm-hmm. of our first character, drunk as a skunk at a table, um, oh, is it one of the best I've ever seen. Into. Yeah. Because he's, he, one, we start with the party that's going on. Then we move away from the party and we see how isolated and sad this guy is. And then we see he's literally put a wall up in front of himself, made out of alcohol. Like Actually, you're backwards on that. Uh, we I? start with him outside on the balcony, and then we see, we kind of zoom out. He's got a bunch of bottles in front of his face, which is like the very first image we see. And then he's like flicking caps and like mumbling about all the gotcha. happy people inside. And then they, they uh, pan over. Um, I gotcha. But no, the visual itself... Of just like seeing him, yeah, buried in this wall of uh, alcohol bottles is so such a good way. Going back to our very first episode on this show where we talked about the way that Spielberg sets up his entire movie just based on um, his first scene. He'll tell you everything that the movie's about in the very first scene. And that's kind of what this is doing, but it's almost doing it in one shot. And almost if you look at this frame, because I just pulled it up on on YouTube again, you could almost see it more abstractly as like the, the alcohol bottles are almost like flames. Like I'm going to go really abstract here with like, Oh yeah. I mean, the yeah, flames he's, of hell. He's isolated know. himself in hell. Yeah. And, of and alcoholism. The, the alcohol is the hell that he has buried himself in, which is just the constant driving thing throughout the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, this actually is like a really, Kind of like dark look at addiction. It's so uh, dark. <laughs> really it's almost Greek. 
I really is, was trying to it, come it up with a is. direct Greek uh, comparison, but I feel like, I mean, it's a it's a bacchanalia disaster. Uh, yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, and it is it's this is the kind of look at addiction that you don't get again until the long weekend, which I think is the early 50s. Um, because the code just slams down on top of everything. And this this movie actually doesn't escape the code or Hollywood sensibilities entirely. Uh, I'm sure at some point we'll talk about the Hollywood ending tacked on to this movie. Yeah. Um, but it's also made very clear by how short it is and how Dorothy Arzner cuts it that where her real true ending of this movie it, is. It's ought, it ought to be a tragedy. It is intended to be a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And it very much is. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, we have sound. We have sound, Alex. We do have sound, but we have 1932 sound, um, which is a very different type of sound than what we're used to. Even in what you think of as like high classical Hollywood, late 30s, uh, 40s into the early 50s, um, this is a very different sort of sound and you can hear it. Like you can hear the sound drop out and then pick back up whenever an actor speaks um, or just the rare use of score throughout most yeah. of early 1930s movies where there's just a lot of like complete silence. So it's almost like in a way Hollywood takes a few years to transition fully from a silent film into a sound film and it's entirely at least in the way that we interpret sound films these days. Uh, but in this case, um, we were kind of a half step through that process. So you've got this interesting, awkward sound where it's used basically just for dialogue and occasionally some music, but there isn't mm -hmm. much sound design beyond that. Like yeah, ambience I mean, is not a thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, which works, especially for this film, like, uh, as kind of dramatic as it is like a lot of times that silence helps you sort of process it without you know uh what can happen where the the score is like forcing the emotion down your throat kind of thing um which you know we've we've for the most part gotten to a point where we figured that out we know how to do a nice compliment without uh just like whoop -a -doop -a -doop -a -doop, we're happy bah, 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 we're sad um, kind of a thing, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it's kind of a different experience that if you're, if you're not used to it, you kind of gotta, uh, again, just kind of get into the mode of the film. Um, but then once you're into it, you're like, okay. And you kind of go along with the rest of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just a style thing. It's like an interesting kind of like archaic, um, note to notice about this movie but definitely doesn't take away from the story that's being told, mm -hmm. which is so deeply tragic. And again, it's kind of like a star-crossed lovers thing, very similar to Get Your Man, but it's more like the completely doomed lovers. Yeah. And it's almost, I don't know, I feel like there's, there's so much to unpack here that I haven't even completely worked through, but it almost goes into this, this thing that, uh, you know, sometimes called like the, the beauty and the beast effect where when you're getting into a relationship um, where one of the people is very flawed and the other person goes into the relationship expecting to be able to change them and fix them. Uh, I want to fix him. 
Yeah, but that doesn't pretty much never happens, which is why it can be a really toxic thing. Uh, and this shows, you know, this is showing how that doesn't work. And, you know, the person that you got involved with, the person that you married, is going to be the same person. If they're going to change, it has to be on them. It's it's not going to be necessarily yeah. on you. Uh, or you can't expect it to be anyway. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we think of, like, you know, Hollywood glitzy movies as showing the opposite. They show... You know, oh, they were a perfect match, and so he eventually turned his life around. What does it kind of do in this movie? But again, it's kind of a throwaway thing. Um, really, what it's showing is, uh, no, he is just as messed up after they get married, no matter how good she is, how quote-unquote swell she is. Um, yes. Oh, God, they say <laughs> that so many times. But no. they, It's they, actually, you know, it's actually a very conscious point that's made in the movie. It's like a technique oh, yeah. that's used. I thought it was going to be, I thought it was just an archaic use at first. I was like, oh, wow, they really did say swell a lot. And then she was like, why do you always call me swell? Why do you never say you love me? Yeah. And I was like, oh. That becomes one of the biggest things. Clever. Yeah. So, I mean, it did get really annoying, but when the movie knows what it's doing with it, then, um, you know, you can you can keep those things as long as you can justify them and not just make them kind of uh, kitschy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, there's so, some dark turns in this movie, Jonathan. Yeah, and I want to talk <laughs> I mean, about that she because she gets dragged right down with him. But she does have an element of agency, which I want to bring up because um, even though she does get dragged down with him, there's the the she most, makes the choice. Yes, the most interesting part of the movie is the scene with the door, the scene where he's about to go to his old girlfriend. Uh, they're already married. He's going to go out and, you know, be with her. She knows it. He knows it. He says, um, you know, if you love me, you will stop me from going out and you will close that door and lock it and throw away the key and I will stay here tonight. And instead, she opens the door and she's like, go. So it's almost like he is using it as... It's almost like he's saying that if I do this, it will be your fault because I warned you kind of a thing, which is kind of a manipulative type yeah, of it's, thing. Yeah, it's, it's very, fairly low. He just wants she, the agency off of him. Yeah, although it is not to say that her restraining him would necessarily be a bad thing, but when he makes it a command like that, yeah, that's, that's, that's it low. changes the dynamic. And so she flips that on his head and she says, no, I'm going to let you go. So now it's on you if you walk out that door because, you know, I'm opening it. And if you love me, you won't go. So there's this really, really strong power dynamic. And of course, he does go. And then the movie flips on its head because yeah. she takes it and runs with it the other direction. Uh, and we get another star that I was not expecting to see in this movie um, very, very early in his career. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, no one ever expects Cary Grant. No one expects Cary Grant in this kind of movie where he becomes... No uh, one ever expects basically, the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> he basically becomes like her boy toy from uh, from this point out. Um, and so then they have this really like flippant open marriage um, where... And this is where, you know, they're, the, the merrily we go to hell thing like really comes to fruition where they're just going out and drinking and, you know being out on the town and everything. Uh, 
And it's just, it's really painful to watch because you are set up, you know, sympathizing with both of them. Like you really want him to turn his life around and you really like her because she's set up as kind of the, um, the kind of model, uh, innocent kind of girl looking for true love kind of thing. Uh, and so both of those things have been basically destroyed at this point. And you're just kind of like waiting to see what will happen. Yeah. I mean, essentially he's a drowning man and she refuses to let go of him. And she repeatedly makes the decision to stick around and just go deeper into the water until they're both really, really drowning. Oh man. I mean, the scene where at the party where they're like playing out that movie scene is just so sad. There's so, yeah, there's so much that, that, uh, that goes into it. And there's, there's a lot of like the way that it's set up is again, it's so like Grecian because it's like, there's the foreshadowing of the other lady. I wasn't even totally sure what her whole like, uh, history was or, there was something about her like failed relationship and she was like warning her at the very beginning. Um, and then that all kind of fell apart, but okay. So the phrase merrily we go to hell, Alex, how did you think that that kind of came off within the movie? Cause it is a, it is a diegetic like thing. Yeah, it is, is things they say. Um, it's almost like <laughs> it's almost clunky though. It's a little clunky, but I get what it's going for. It definitely came out of a writer's room and then yeah. nobody it was like, maybe we should work on this a bit. They just kind of went with the first thing. Um, so to preface, like every time that that he starts drinking, he he does a toast and he says, merrily, we go to hell. And then he he takes a, a swig or whatever. But it's not like a common thing that people say. And it felt like they were just like it was definitely setting up a thematic thing for the movie. And it it just felt like really ham-fisted kind of like if they'd used it once maybe it would have worked but it just it never really felt natural anytime he said it not at all um but i, I mean get i the like sentiment. the title I get, but the I totally line the doesn't sentiment. work yeah yeah right yeah maybe if it said like once in the entire movie but i mean this is definitely like essentially it's a catchphrase and this is still very young hollywood they're trying yeah. to figure it out I, it's I'm almost give like pass it's almost like here's looking at you kid but it's yeah. just not as smooth as that. Yeah. If you if it was said maybe once, like if they saved it for one time near the end of the movie when he just really where he makes like a final decision mm-hmm. or like the, the crucial decision to drink one night, then it just screws everything up beyond repair. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a great time to drop it. But the fact that you so much kind of kind of ruins it, which he does. So, yeah, the, the relationship with alcohol thing is kind of interesting because this goes again into the character dynamics and the power dynamics, but his relationship with alcohol almost directly mirrors, uh, his relationship with his old girlfriend and were were they, were they ever married or were they just, they were just together and she broke his heart or whatever. I think, I think she just broke his heart somehow. I think so. Um, but like at the very beginning, he's, you know, basically mourning her and that's where he's, you know, completely wasted at the party and then after they get married well there's the really uh striking visual where they get married and he loses the ring and so he puts a uh a a a corkscrew on her finger or like a bottle opener on her finger and kind of like they kind of hide it so it just looks like a a basic ring 
um, which that in itself was a really kind of striking visual. Uh, but then he runs into his, uh, his old girlfriend and then the drinking starts up almost immediately. And so then like the farther they go down into that is when he starts just basically being with her more than, um, his own wife and all that kind of stuff. And then kind of by the time he's given himself over back over to her and back over to the drink, that's when she goes over to it too. So there's all these dynamics that are all kind of playing off each other and it's all done so intentionally. It's not like any of this stuff was just kind of like thrown together. That's what I really like about all three of these movies. Even is even though sometimes there's like some really heavy stuff in them, it's all like really intentional and thought provoking. Yeah, no, this isn't like just heavy for the sake of being heavy. This is thematic and important in an interesting way. Um, Also resonant because this is, I think, just post prohibition, or maybe it's still during prohibition. I was actually just looking that up. Ends with with the twenties or with. I think it's technically thirty three, so it's like right at the tail end. Yeah. Because this and movie comes out, everyone kind of already knew it was going. Thirty-two, yeah. Because I was wondering about that. I was wondering if I was wondering why they didn't bring it up at all. Honestly, I kind of expected them to, uh, but it did. It's a feel fantasy like, world. It's a slightly yeah. different dimension where prohibition never happened, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like because all the scenes where they're going to these really like lavish, uh, I don't know, drinking parties or orgies or whatever you want to call them. I don't know exactly what was being implied with I some of those scenes. I don't think that's an. I don't think they're orgies. I think they're just like. For lack of a better term, bacchanal. Yeah, basically. Bacchanalia? Uh, yeah. Bacchanali. Whatever, however you uh, conjugate, <laughs> conjugate bacchanai. Um, so yeah, they, but they're they're like very lavish and they almost felt like speakeasy scenes, but they were never really like uh, intentionally mentioned that way. But the, the drinking, like so much drinking in this movie is something that is very very pre-code because uh if drinking i mean obviously drinking had to be kind of condemned which it is in this movie i mean especially to the excessive extent that is portrayed um but and also like the open marriage thing i'm fairly certain would not have flown two years later you know there's so much thematic stuff in this movie that i that would have had to been like very dialed back uh, a couple years later, once the code goes into effect, and who knows? I, I mean, I haven't looked this up or anything, but this might have been one of the movies that really kind of kickstarted that um, that code push. Uh, but I'm sure there were way worse movies coming out. I think out. it was. <laughs> I think the code was all but it formalized at this point. Um, essentially, this wasn't in effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the code, so the code is important, but it's not like a line in the sand. It's more of like the culmination of Hollywood's self um, policing efforts over mm-hmm. the, that had grown over the past decade. In and we've talked about this before, the their effort to avoid being trust busted or have any regulation put over them by the government. Um, so they're like, look at us, we're behaving, and slowly as you know. Pressures continue. They essentially just keep ramping up and keep ramping up and yeah. keep ramping up. And it culminated in the code. Um, I just looked at this. I just uh, I just Wikipedia the code. Uh, so for I think we've talked about this before, but the Hayes code or the production code was something implemented implemented 
finally in 1934, and then it ran all the way up to like late 60s. Uh, but it was a basically set of moral guidelines that all films had to uh, more or less adhere to in order to be produced and released, uh, largely influenced by like uh, various um, Catholic uh, institutions in uh, California at the time and that kind of thing. Uh, but I just, on Wikipedia, the image is like a cover page for, I think it's for the actual code. It says, a code to govern the making of motion pictures, the support, the reason supporting it, and the resolution for uniform interpretation. Which, you know, if that doesn't sound like Orwellian rigidness, I don't know what, <laughs> what does. Oh, very, yeah, no, it 100% is. Um, but, alas, that's how things go. Yeah. Um, but yes, it makes for some very interesting movies. You can already tell that this movie is dancing around certain lines. Um, what did you think of the real ending and then the Hollywood ending, Jonathan? Yeah, so let's describe that real quick. Um, so there's, again, spoilers. I found a copy of this movie on YouTube, so you guys can go look it up uh, if you would like. But we're going to talk about the very end of the movie now. So skip ahead if you wish. Um, so at the very end of the movie, uh, our, our main character, Sylvia Sidney's character is not feeling well. She finds out that she's pregnant and, um, pregnant and drunk, pregnant and drunk. Yeah. Which is obviously a terrible combination. I think that was a reality show on the history channel at one point. Are you serious? Uh, no, but you believe me, which tells tells a lot about the situation. Oh gosh, that's telling. Um, so yeah, and she tries to tell uh, her quote unquote husband at this point. I mean, technically, they never got divorced, but um, she tells her she tries to tell her husband, but he's too busy philandering basically. And uh, so then she runs away. She goes back to her father's house, who's basically been against him from the very beginning with very good reason. And then he finally follows after her after uh his girlfriend like makes him realize that he never loved her something really hollywood romancy like that uh he's like oh i never loved you i only loved her and so he runs back uh and finds out that she's in the hospital and then we learn that uh the baby didn't make it and she is you know they're not sure whether she's going to make it or not. The dad's like, you can't go in there. You have no right to see the baby. He's like, it's my baby. And so he pushes past and goes in. And then uh, he tells his wife that he loves her, which is the only thing that she's wanted to hear him say. And uh, then they they embrace and the movie ends. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's a little it's a little forced. You, you can tell it's kind of meant to end with uh, her death. Yeah. Almost like you could see it where, like, she dies right then and then. There, there was, like, a couple of things that they put in there at the very end that almost could have made for an extra reel or two on this movie. Um, where the de- where she's like, I want to see him. The dad goes out and says, she doesn't want to see you. He pushes past him anyway, so that was kind of pointless. Um, and then she says... Uh, I, I, I want to see my husband and he's right there and then he gets to tell her I love you but it almost could have been like 
like she dies and then he says, I love you. Like that feels like the more uh, narratively cohesive ending. It does. It does. Um, I get an odd sense from this movie and I've gotten this from other movies from this same era um, that their efforts weren't to focus on the ending, which is maybe misplaced. But there, there's almost this sense uh, in a lot of movies from this time that they were like, "Well, the studios determine the ending. We we don't really get much say over that, but we do get say over the middle bits." It's about the so, journey, yeah, yeah. So, so they, it all, it, there's almost this uh, overemphasis on this the second act, um, and oftentimes the first act as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, hoping that the audience can just infer a good ending, which it sounds like you're basically doing right now. Yeah, kind of. Uh, and the other thing that they don't bring up, which seems like a natural question, is, is he even the baby's father? Because it seems like there's a very small possibility of that. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. That's up for the audience to decide. And they are very covert about that implication. Yeah, they don't even like they don't even imply anything about that. But the idea is like they haven't been together. I mean, I assume that their whole separation was, you know, at like six months to at least a year, if not more, like we don't know how long that time was, but, uh, I have a feeling that there's a much better chance as Carrie Grant's baby. It very, if it comes, if it, if it's born with like a tan and a really strong chin, <laughs> well, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the ending definitely, it's striking, but the, the really, the meat of the movie is, you know, the journey. It is watching what could have been a fairy tale, a Beauty and the Beast kind of story turn into it a complete well, disaster but it didn't. and tragedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how that breaks her spirit and eventually, uh, like kills you, him. Well, yeah, but I was also going to say it, it almost redeems him, but it almost redeems him after it's been, after it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of the point. Yeah. Um, which is, one of the more poignant parts of tragedy too, when somebody's left to left behind to look upon their work and weep. Yeah. But not in the Ozymandias sense. No, it's, it's realizing the mistake after the, after there's no, yeah. uh, uh reconciliation. there's no way to undo it. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're stuck with it and you're stuck alive. Um, which is yeah. his own kind of hell that he's, yeah, he's now exactly. found himself in. That he went to. Not so merrily, but he went there. Yeah. And he he drug an innocent along with him. He did. He did at that. Well, shall we move on to Dance Girl Dance from 1940? Yes, let's do it. Jason, take it away. Dance Girl Dance from 1940. Judy is an aspiring ballerina who is currently working as a chorus girl alongside Bubbles, a cynical blonde willing to do anything to get ahead. One night they meet Jimmy, a tormented rich young man in the midst of a divorce. Judy's teacher takes her for an audition with a ballet impresario, but en route, a tragic bus accident keeps her from making the introduction. Bubbles, meanwhile, has become a successful burlesque star and offers the desperate for work Judy a job as her stage stooge, which she reluctantly takes, 
suffering the jeers and heckles of her ballet act as a buildup for Bubbles' striptease performance each night. From the bus to the coincidence of who attends the burlesque show each night, life throws everything it has at Judy as she tries to overcome and chase her dream her way. This movie has gone more, well, definitely more mainstream than the other two. It's the only one that I could find an easy version to rent online. Uh, yeah, and it has been put in the available. National Film Registry and stuff like that. So people know about this movie more. I mean, it's still kind of fringe a, cinephile fair, but... it's it's There's a, there's a number of more touchstones in here. Uh, yeah. You know, Lucille Ball's in it, obviously. Rosalind Russell is the star. Um, and, oh gosh, what's his uh, name? Maureen O'Hara. Maureen, oh, Maureen O'Hara, that's it. Not Rosalind Russell. My bad. Um, different redhead. Uh, Maureen O'Hara is the star. Uh, and then, as I did not know, Jonathan, but you pointed out to me, uh, Robert Wise edited this just before he did Citizen Kane. Yeah. And we've talked about Robert Wise because he shows up just like in the most random places in, in classic Hollywood uh, and eventually he's, he's directs kind of one of those guys such a just range. All over the place. Yeah. So, from like editing some of the most classic films to directing some of the most classic uh, Doesn't films. he do like West Side Story and Star Trek? West Side Story, Star Trek, um, Singing in the Rain. No, 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 not Singing in the Rain. Uh, Sound of Music and uh, uh, what's the other one that's out there? Oh, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. So like everywhere. He is everywhere. And we're going to we'll do an episode on him one day. But uh, yeah, so we talked about Dorothy Osner starting out as an editor. And uh, the last film we're talking about today is one where her editor goes on to become a famous director in his own right. Yeah, very much so. Um, which is interesting. So, uh, Jonathan, this is kind of a movie that almost completely forgoes the classic Hollywood romance plot. Even if it's not, and, and typically in classical Hollywood, even if we see romance as not as the A plot, we at least see a very strong romance as the B plot. And while that's kind of there somewhere here, in there, it's not nearly as strong. And it's very pointedly at one point kind of pushed to the side by our lead. Uh, yeah, the, the quote-unquote romances that happen in this are really just uh, vehicles. They're, the, the romance is almost a MacGuffin the entire time. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. It's, it's mostly about uh, the contrast between uh, Maureen O'Hara's character and Lucille Ball's character. It's the, um, the abuse... Of innocence and the uh, yeah, they're both being uh, very, very, very exploited. I would say, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But Lucille in different bubbles, just kind of leans into it a bit more and starts to get yeah. ahead because she's willing to uh, do anything it, for money. Literally, basically, literally, just completely cater to the male gaze. That's e- expressly what she's doing. Um, because a, she wants the. I mean. Mostly what she wants is money. We see that when she she marries the rich guy uh, and then is totally fine with divorcing him for more money. Uh, and then but also it is it is an element of her own vanity. And uh, she has she gets some sense of like uh, distorted satisfaction out of being desired by everybody. Yeah. Uh, and she, to the point where she projects a desire by Maureen O'Hara's character uh, and just assumes that everything Maureen O'Hara does is because she's jealous of of herself, which yeah. is not the case, 
but she yeah. is so conceited that she can't see past yeah. it. It's actually there. There's a big part of this movie that's entirely about how the the male gaze will divides women into two groups: prudes and whores, and they'll complain about both. Yeah, it's um, the it, uh, it's a the very strict Madonna whore complex. Yeah, or, yeah, that's what it's called, right? Uh, maybe I I'm not that up to date on my sociology, um, but possibly if there if you know something about it, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, in psychoanalytic literature, Madonna whore complex is the inability. Uh, it's it's a Freudian thing, basically, where it, exactly what you were saying. They either see them as like saintly Madonnas or uh, completely completely debased with very little gray area. And the the movie does that. It creates a very stark contrast. Uh, so in this one, it's not kind of the. Uh, the loss of innocence in the way that merely we go to hell was for our, our, uh, our main lead. It's more a, she kind of allows herself to be taken advantage of in more of like a, uh, fiscal way than, um, like any kind of a physical way and, and, and like a demoralizing kind of way. She allows that, uh, in order to kind of hold on to her own dignity and Mm -hmm. eventually it wins out. And, but for a long time, it's, it's like the, uh, the more promiscuous character gets the upper hand for a large portion of the movie. But there's this really interesting thing. Like, um, one of the things that I, I was noticing is like every time we see bubbles, uh, she is like draped in, uh, you know, a different fur or a different hat or she has a different man or whatever. So she's constantly accepting favors from men in a really, in a really literal sense. Also, uh, you know, obviously that goes into layers of subtext, but then when we get the scene of Maureen O'Hara, who won't even accept, uh, the, the ballet dancer guy to hold an umbrella for her, it kind of, you know, it goes into a little bit of her pride, but also her modesty. And it's just like, it's a really stark contrast between, you know, not even accepting kind of like a really gracious act because she's seen the pitfalls of accepting too much from people who yeah. don't have your best interest in heart. Yeah, she's essentially been traumatized in a sense. Like she's yeah. seen how bad it can go. So yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting meditation on like what, and the theme is just so interesting because it's so... Mm-hmm ahead of its time it's like what is it like to be a woman trying to succeed in the world or even just like have the career you want to have when all like your entire career is based around the idea of you having to cater to men in one way shape or form or the other Um, and it gets blatantly polemic at the end where maureen o'hara stands up and like just monologues at the uh such a good monologue i love that monologue it's really good um but like the movie is saying stuff and it is saying stuff to your face. Uh, I love how and, in, it, in your face it gets. And it's yeah. it's all stuff that for the most part, I think modern audiences are like, yeah, we agree with this. Uh, but I can imagine just how edgy this is for when it came out. Well, see, the th- yeah. And the thing is that I don't think that this movie has lost any of its relevance because I could see a modern adaptation of this exact same plot, but you put it in the context of like Instagram models 
and all the yeah. guys at the burlesque are like the comment section. Uh, you know, oh god, they are. It's it could almost exactly be like transposed into an internet context because you know she's she's commenting on you know like the fact that the the men feel safe because you know they're not going to get criticized by the women on stage. They just have basically a free pass and how like their stupid faces look in the audience and that kind of thing. And, you know, it could almost be exactly the same as, you know, scrolling through Instagram and just posting the, the lewdest, stupidest comments on, on girls photos. Like this has not lost any of its impact in today's context. It's just, you know, not quite as prevalent in a sit down stage kind of a context. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're hundred percent correct. It is still very, very, very relevant. Um, which is a, Kind of super sad. Uh, yeah, it but is. But it's one of the reasons I think why I like this movie so much is it's saying things in a really accessible way that kind of need to be said. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in a way that you like the characters. Like, I don't even like dislike yeah. Bubbles throughout over the course of this movie. Yeah, she can be a little annoying sometimes, but I also understand. She can be downright evil sometimes. She can. But I also totally understand how she ended up that way. And yeah. like why she does the things she did, she does, um, and even just the base level of empathy these characters have for each other is just impressive, especially compared to a lot of early '30s and '40s movies. Because I don't know if you've noticed this before, Jonathan. Maybe it's in an interest to for for uh, conflict and plot and scenes. But a lot of people in 30s and 40s movies, and the majority of them, are just assholes. <laughs> and I don't know no. why. They're all so mean. And I'm like, why are you so mean? Yes, this makes for an interesting movie. But I can't. I really don't want to believe that everyone in America was that mean at that point in time. But there's well, so many nice noirs kind were really big movie. at that point. That's true. In a noir, I don't mind it so much. But yeah, in, in, you expect it, it. It's most of the time in the dramas that I'm like, why is everyone so awful yeah all the time uh but this one i love it i i I love the mix of characters who are incredibly empathetic or characters who are trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons or trying to do the wrong thing for the right reasons uh i also love the uh we're one step away from destiny whack here comes a bus oh my gosh the (laughs) the freaking bus and then we never see her again no, she's oh dead. Gosh. Of course we don't see her again. <laughs> oh my gosh. But she like we don't go to a funeral, nothing. She's just gone. That's how death oh, works. Man. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That came out of nowhere. But it's, yeah, I mean, this is even this, this is movie, very very brutal. This is a this is not a kind movie. No. We saw that also in Merrily We Go to Hell. And I think it's something that if you look at just the topics it of Dorothy Arsner movies or just read summaries of them, like you wouldn't think of it first. But she is very, very blunt about the way yeah. life can actually She's not be. She's pulling punches. No, it, it can be brutal. It can be harsh. It can be over in an instance. You can struggle your entire life and barely get anywhere. You can get dragged down in a toxic relationship. Um, all very real shit. It's, like, it's almost like a. It's it's almost like a an Obi Wan Kenobi thing where it's like, oh well, she's not doing anything for the rest of the movie, so let's just let's just knock her out. Basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that that is one thing. When we get to like the ballet thing, and um, the the silver lining of the movie is because there there are some like really dark things. Like bubbles, like really 
bothered me because she does get so uh, greedy and so conceited that she she's the most unlikable of the characters. I mean, besides the the burlesque audience, obviously, but um, but the silver lining is that like you're just waiting. And, and it's set up this way intentionally, but you're just waiting for Maureen O'Hara to realize that the ballet guy is, you know, the person that she needs to be with. Oh, but she's man, so they come so close so many she times. she won't figure it out. Yeah. Um, and then she, like, she watches their ballet uh, rehearsal. And so that also kind of brings this to a place where I feel like this has uh, almost Grecian influence because they're basically putting on, like, a Greek play and the contrast and the dynamics are so stark uh, that I... I feel like Arsner is just pulling so much of this like really classical tone that makes the narrative uh, feel so solid. Um, but yeah, and even at the end of the movie, she's like the last line is, if only I had realized that you were the one, everything would have been solved so easily. And I'm like, yep, yeah, I yeah, guess no. that's called plot, huh? But the, it, it is plot, but it's also so well motivated because her characters are so complex. The reason yeah. she doesn't realize that he was the right one is because of the way life had treated her in the entire movie. Cause she was so humble, which the way is we, her well, defining characteristic. Yeah. She's, she's humble, but also everyone else had screwed her over. Everyone yeah. else had been awful to her. Every other person who had approached her had been terrible. So she had no reason to think anyone was going to be nice to her. Um, and we saw that on screen. So we totally understand why she was not only why she was being humble. Cause that's like her natural characteristic, but also the fact that she has a very good right to be very suspicious of everyone who approaches her. Mm -hmm. Also, if that lady hadn't got hit by a bus, she would have just explained the whole oh, thing. Oh yeah, but. no, she would have. <laughs> she would have like given the introduction and would have been over in thirty minutes. Um, yeah. So I guess good thing she got hit by a bus. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a movie. Yeah, I know. That's the kind but, of stuff you can get away with in a first act. You can't randomly kill characters off of buses in the second act. Yeah, right. Because that then it becomes a uh, just real convenient, if not a Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, but in the in the first act, it's an inciting incident, so you can do that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but man, it 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 definitely leaves you feeling very uh, convicted. Like it is talking to you, not just like in general terms. Yeah. So um, and, but uh, also. I guess we haven't even got into the whole like Casablanca plot yet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With Ferdinand. Yeah, no, it's a little odd, but it's there. Yeah, so there there's so many layers. So like the last thing that we haven't really got into is the idea that she's in love with this with the the guy who's just so wrong for her, which I mean, it's very blatant about, you know, he's just gotten divorced, he's a drunk, he uh still has feelings for his ex-wife, um, all this kind of stuff. He's like super rich, although he's not, his richness is not really one of his failings because he's not very haughty about it, uh, at least from what we see. Um, yeah, he's not the and worst yet, rich person we've ever seen in a movie by a long shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, but the, the, the interesting dynamic is that like she sees a spark of goodness in him that she latches onto, and he he longs for her, you know, innocence for, for lack of a better word. Like he's drawn to that, even though, uh, it's almost like a merrily we go to hell situation where he would have just like brought her down with him because he's so flawed. Uh, and he wasn't ready to change yet, or at least not in the way that, you know, 
would have needed to happen for them to actually work. And so they're like, they're toying around with this relationship until uh, Maureen O'Hara like kind of gets his full backstory and that kind of thing. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> okay, so the scene where the court scene, which is 80% inspiration for the ending of What's Up Doc. Um, <laughs> <laughs> after the, the cat fight and everything. Um, so in the court scene, Maureen O'Hara's character just like goes total psychoanalysis on every person there. Like she's figured all these people out. She figures out what makes them tick and why they've uh, like where their flaws are and everything. And she just like, yeah, she, she becomes puts everyone <laughs> in their place. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then she still gets the, the butt end of the deal where she has to go to jail for 10 days. Um, yeah. So I think that part is really, is just like such a good wrap up because I mean, it's what you want from a movie, right? You want someone to just like get it. There's one person who gets it and is going to just like lay it all yeah. out for you. Especially if it's um, an intricate, like movie like this with a lot of character plot and you're like, mm -hmm. you, you just want to scream at all the characters. What's up with them? It's like, this is why your life sucks. You keep doing this. Stop it. Yeah. And then for to have a character stand up and tell everybody that, especially in the third act and especially your protagonist who's realized what makes her self tick as well. Yeah. Um, is just so cathartic. And ah, again, it so goes good. into the, yeah, it goes into the power dynamics again, because at this point she has been the underdog for the whole thing, you know, which we've seen before, but, uh, bubbles is so obsessed with, with having the power, having the upper hand, like we saw in get your man, uh, where she's constantly manipulating people, but much more on a nefarious level um, than in Get Your Man. And so we've grown to dislike Bubbles because of the way that she manipulates both the men and the women characters for her own gain. Uh, and then Maureen O'Hara, finally, who's just kind of like humbly submitted herself to this. She knows she's being taken, care, taken advantage of. She's not naive, uh, you know, by the end of it, I mean, she's, she's like getting realizations as she goes through, uh, but she knows what's happening. And then in the court scene, she finally is the one who has the power in none of the scenes. Do the men ever have the, the are holding the power in the scene. So even the scenes with the Ferdinand guy, you know, he's never like overbearing or anything, you know, maybe in the scenes with his wife, but those are kind of inconsequential. Uh, so it's always yeah. either, Maureen O'Hara's character or um, Lucille Ball's character that are really holding uh, the power. Yeah, in you any could, in any could, given scene, you could make an argument that the uh, director of the ballet has some power here, but only because, in like the very last because, shot. Uh, because Maureen O'Hara's character rejects him repeatedly throughout the movie when all he yeah. wants is to put her, put her in the ballet. Be nice to um, her, yeah. She, uh, he doesn't really have any of the power. He doesn't have the power to give her the job she wants. She's really the one in her own way from getting that job. And once she deems, yeah. she comes to her own self-realization, she gives herself the power to take the job, which is a really nice touch. Mm -hmm. The more we talk about it, the more I think that this is decidedly Arzner's like masterpiece. Yeah, of her which particular is why I think it's set. the one that has captured so much cultural uh, imagination because there's so many levels that all interweave uh, pretty fl fluidly. It's you know, so good, and yet it's so yeah. rarely ever talked about. 
probably the 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 like most jarring part of it is probably the the freaking bus, which is just a really the most convenient thing that happens. It is, it is, it is. But there is a big theme in the movie too that re- life is cruel, and it just kind of yeah. throws stuff at you. So it kind of fits. Yeah, because um, she's constantly getting stepped on. Yeah, and uh, you know it happens so early in the movie too that you can kind of accept it. Like that was yeah. that was very much a piece of destiny for her that took her away from, um, away from the path she was essentially meant to be on, and takes her a while and some self realization to get back to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the last thing as we kind Do of wrap, wrap destiny, this movie, Jonathan, is uh, well, the last thing I want to bring up is uh, that we should not be portraying birds. We should be portraying the American condition. <laughs> the freaking ballet guy who is like dictating to his stenographer and he's like write this rejection letter because her audition was just about you know being a bird i'm tired of watching people dance like birds i want to see what makes america tick what is the problem with america uh and there's just like he just like goes off on this whole like ballet cliche tangent i was just like it was a throwaway thing but it was so funny yeah no it was random but very very funny um, I like that there there are it's almost a musical at times, but mostly it's just kind of a danceical. Um, yeah, but uh, Lucille Ball actually does get uh, a couple of singing bits. Uh, oh, that's true, she does. Which, uh, as my wife pointed out while we were watching it, isn't it her whole thing in I Love Lucy that she can't sing, well, and so she could joke. never be in Ricky's band. And uh, yeah, yeah, she can actually kind of sing. Yeah. Although, obviously, that was not the point of her performance in any of the parts of this movie, but it did not come off badly. All right, Jonathan, let's move into overall note, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. We've kind of hit a lot of stuff already just within the meat of this, but... uh, I think the biggest thing is just the complexity of her characters and mm -hmm. the... I think, especially in a time where it just didn't happen anywhere else... um, except maybe in George Cukor movies, um, female characters having agency, having power in situations um, equal to, or even surpassing that of the male characters in their, the same movies, which is just rare, especially for this period in time. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and also the, the complex and, and thematic, uh, levels that go into everything and her transition from uh, silent to sound you know so many uh, you know regardless male female directors did not make that, that director, transition actors, a lot of people just could not hop over even some of the, the biggest names that we still look up to like Buster Keaton just couldn't make it happen for whatever reason there's obviously like politics and stuff that goes in there and uh, pandemics and blah 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 but you know, to overcome all of those excuses, of which there are many, and still make uh, really great films throughout that time, um, up until such a point as she stopped making movies for her own reasons, you know, that is an impressive thing. And the fact that they still work and they weren't like, you know, sound wasn't detracting from it. It didn't feel like gimmicky, like, you know, we're going to make a, a big film just with sound because we have sound, but you know, they're still really compelling stories. They have a lot to say. And that continued and almost just got 
deeper and deeper as her career progressed, at least through these movies that we've been talking about today. Yeah, no, I totally get why she would be such a big influence on someone like Coppola. Um, I have a feeling, like I said, I have a feeling there's no way Bogdanovich didn't, wasn't familiar with her work. And I oh, feel like no, there's Bogdanovich would there. know her work. Bogdanovich knew every piece of work. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I was going through, like, just watching um, Dance Girl Dance. I just, like, movie after movie kept coming to mind. Like, Casablanca with, like, the the depressed drunk guy who constantly going to clubs and is, and is uh, you know, uh, sad about his old relationship. Um, even, like, Singing in the Rain, uh, where the chorus girl who, you know, is being pursued to become a star and she's kind of running away from it. Like there are so many themes in these movies that, uh, that feel like they continue through Hollywood and just resonate and, and get built on and built on and built on with more and more classic films that come out after this one. Uh, that, you know, I think Arsner's career has more of an impact than people realize who have maybe never even heard her name before. Yeah, for sure. And she, I mean, it's, definitely a pioneer in terms of just keeping the torch of female filmmaking alive throughout the thirties and forties. Um, and even though I don't think the two had a lot of interactions, essentially passing it on to Ida Lupino who conveniently, uh, might be next week's topic. Spoilers. And twink week, although we're literally about to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but yes. And, and I think it's an important part of film history to study um, because obviously the the master filmmakers of the 30s and 40s are incredibly good and deeply worth studying your Hitchcocks and your Orson Welles um, Lubitsch and Lubitsch uh, uh, Priminger um, all, all of the amazing directors from that time period are definitely worth studying and should be studied um and they all have the highest profile movies and eat, but they all have kind of similar viewpoints when it comes to gender. So being able to have a viewpoint outside of just that one singular male voice, um, is, is nice and refreshing and deserves to be, uh, studied in it, how it existed in, in the past. And as we're seeing now is definitely sought after and promoted, um, both within the artist community and within the fan community as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, uh, I mean, it's kind of an example that, that talent has always been there. You know, it's never been necessarily the strongest voice or even proportionally correct. But again, like, you know, people are realizing that and they're, we're working on it. It's a progress. Uh, but you know, that, Talent is there, and so these nuggets um, of different viewpoints that exist uh, from this time period are, like you're saying, they're definitely worth seeking out and and studying, especially if you're studying all that other stuff, like to not limit it to, you know, just the greats as such if, that are all kind of in one bubble. Like as much as they can portray various experiences – they cannot uh, all be coming from different experiences, you know, to some extent or another. Uh, I mean, you have obviously 
various levels of um, immigrant directors like Frank Capra and Fritz Long and stuff like that. Um, but you know, there's where one boundary find, they can't jump over. Yeah, where you find the uh, Dorothy Arsners and Ida Lupinos, it's worth making sure that that gets into your your study mix, uh, and just making that that study as broad as possible. All right, Jonathan. So if you don't know, what are we going to be talking about next week? Yeah, so as we've already spoiled, next time we're going to be talking about Ida Lupino, uh, whose career starts pretty much right at the tail end of Arsner's and then goes into the late 60s, early 70s. So we're And she starts off as an actor and then transitions into directing. So the very first film that we're going to uh, talk about she uh, is acting in is High Sierra from 1941. And then the final two films are her uh, directing works. And that is The Hitchhiker from 1953, which is a thriller. And I believe it's public domain. You can find copies of it everywhere online. So definitely search that one out. Uh, and then The Trouble with Angels from 1966, which is more of an uh, kind of... Uh, almost like irreverent comedy kind of a thing. Uh, so very different tones. Uh, High Sierra is a, a thriller, maybe noir. I think it's a noir. Uh, so High Sierra and Hitchhiker are kind of similar, but they're coming from the same point of view um, or the same type of genre. And yeah, so I'm, I'm very excited to see, you know, how that translates, especially off across such a span of history of film history as the early 1940s to the mid to late 1960s, because the types of films that were being made across that span like changed drastically. Yeah, there's a big shift in the 40s. Um, definitely kind of one of the more unnoticed shifts, especially compared to like the 60s, which is a big one. Um, mm -hmm. But definitely also one worth looking at. And basically the rise of indie cinema, which Ida Lupina has a big part in. So yeah. that should be a lot the of... Hitchhiker is very indie. Yeah, it should be interesting to uh, to talk about and take a look at in more detail um but i think oh wait 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 jonathan what is that alex what's going on on the patreon yeah we have a patreon if you would like to support us you can do that jump over there for three dollars a month no what that's not even right for two dollars a month wow it just got cheaper for two dollars a month you can join our online community uh, which is a discord server among other little behind the scenes tidbits uh, and Netflix parties and stuff like that. Uh, and then for $5 a month, you can get extra content from us. So that's a bonus podcast, uh, of which the last topic was, uh, we talked about Quibi and specifically the Ugh. show most dangerous game starring, Ugh. uh, Liam Hemsworth and yeah. Christoph Waltz. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so that was a very interesting talk about the, uh, the first attempt at creating content specifically for your phone, no matter which way you want to hold said phone. Uh, and perhaps it gets it, lost in the center, Jonathan. Yeah, it got a little ranty. So that was fun. Um, but yeah, that's that's our donations. Support us. We we will love you for it. We uh, love you anyway. But that is all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. 
talk to you next time. All right. See ya. Jonathan, we have sound. Oh, yes. In the movie. I was like, what? Did something go wrong in our recording? No, 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 no. We just we have sound. Yes, we have sound in the movie.